0: you are listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegatesegin.com. Have a Bible with you if you'll make your way to the letter of Galatians. As you're turning there, let me just say, Michael, as you're heading out, my friend, I'm going to miss you. Um, I know the church is gonna miss you, but I'm gonna miss you. I still remember, I've joked with you and Sarah before. I still remember the first Sunday y'all came and we were meeting in there, and it has been a joy getting to watch you grow as a young man in the Lord, and now. Not only to watch you grow, but to serve alongside you. Not only has Michael served in our music ministry, he has served our youth. So our youth are, are grateful. The parents of youth, which I have three in youth, I am grateful for the way you've invested. And Chloe, we're glad the Lord has brought you into Michael's life. His parents obviously have been praying for someone like that, but so have we. That someone else would, 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 would love Michael, this big knucklehead here, and care for him. So we, we love him. Uh, we're sad to see you go, but grateful that the Lord has given you this direction. So love you guys. All right, Galatians chapter 5. This morning we're in verses 16 through 24. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 24 is our passage this morning. We're continuing on in this series. Lord willing, we will finish the letter of Galatians end of September. This has been such a rich Season in this letter, just listening to all the things the Lord has for us. I want to read this passage together now. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 24. Church, this is God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. with its passions and desires. May God bless the preaching of his word. Well, the year was 1944 and the world was at war. Or at least the largest, most prominent countries in the world were at war. At that time in 1944, World War II had been going on for over two over five years. And on June the 6th, 1944, an epic battle would commence on the beaches of Normandy, France. A battle that would turn the tide of the war. On that day, around 156,000 allied troops attacked the German army in an all-out assault that took place by air sea and by land the battle at normandy that we refer to as d-day was a military success even though there were many allied casualties why was it a success because the heavy assault crippled the enemy forces in france and because of the invasion at normandy Paris was eventually liberated two months later, which would have probably never happened had it not been for that invasion. And because Paris was liberated, that changed the momentum of fighting in Europe. That would be almost one year after the success of D-Day, before the German army surrendered to the Allied forces. But most historians and military analysts have made the claim that even though D-Day didn't end the war, it changed the course of the war. Actually, the bloody battle that occurred on June the 6, 1944 didn't just change the course of the war. That bloody battle that took place on the beaches of Normandy changed the course of history. Friends, As important as D-Day was in modern world history, it fails in comparison with the epic bloody battle that occurred on a hillside over 2,000 years ago right outside of the city of Jerusalem. You see, during the time of Passover, a battle was fought for the souls of men and victory was secured on that day Jesus Christ the son of God incarnate surrendered his life on a roman cross to defeat the enemy and by his death the enemy was defeated but his death by crucifixion was brutal cruel and bloody And he died in order to accomplish salvation, which brought about reconciliation with God and eternal life for all who believe in his name. Listen, on the cross where Jesus died, all our sin was crucified, our past sin, our present sin and our future sin on the cross the penalty of sin was paid for and the power of sin was broken for all those who put their name, put their trust in Jesus as their savior. But even though the penalty of sin was paid for and the power of sin was broken, the war with sin is not over. Victory over sin has been secured, but the war with sin continues on. That's the point of Galatians chapter four. Verses 16 through 24. Victory has been secured. The victory over sin has been secured, but the war with sin continues on. And this is what we discover in this text this morning. If we were to break it down into two sections, we see this. There's a spir- spiritual battle we're fighting, verses 16 through 23, because victory has been secured in Christ. Verse 24. That's our outline for this morning. A spiritual battle worth fighting because victory has been secured in Christ. Let's look at verses 16 through 23 again. A spiritual battle worth fighting. And I want to go back and read verses 16 through 18. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, what's the context for this passage this morning? What, What was Paul saying leading up to this? It's important that we connect this week with the weeks before, including last week. We'll go back to chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul says, For cre- for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So Paul makes this claim. We are free in Christ, and we are to stand firm in that freedom. But in verse 13, we looked at last week, Paul picks up this thought and says, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. So Paul says we are free in Christ, but we weren't Freed so that we could use our freedom for ourselves, for our own flesh, to to gratify the desires of the flesh. We were freed so that we could love. And that's what he goes on to say in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 5 that we looked at last week. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. If you remember what we looked at last week, it's a surprising statement Paul makes in verse 14. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. And if you recall, back in chapter five, verse three, he tells these professing believers in Galatians, not to choose the path of trying to follow the Mosaic law, because to do so, you must keep the whole law. And who can keep the whole law? So he's basically telling them, don't try to keep the whole law. But then here in verse 14, he tells them, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. And what we discovered is that Paul is not contradicting himself. In chapter 5, verse 3, what Paul is saying is, your justification is not based on you keeping the law. You don't do enough to be right with God. That's not how one is made right with God. The reason he says you can't do that and you shouldn't do that is you can't. You can never keep the law well enough to ever be made right with God. But here in verse 14, he's not talking about our justification, but our sanctification. Even though we cannot do enough to be right with God, once we are made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, we are called to live differently. And our lives should be marked by love. And this morning, Paul picks up from where we left off last week. Today's passage answers the question, how do we keep from living according to the flesh. If we we were given freedom so that we don't live according to the flesh, how do we do that? How do we not live according to the flesh? And what does it mean to pursue sanctification? If we're called to be sanctified, how do we do that? Look at verse 16 again. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. How does one live in such a way That they will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And what Paul means there by not gratify the desires of the flesh, he's basically saying to do things that are sinful, to do things that are wrong. How does one do that? Here's what we discover according to verse 16. No one can do it on their own. We need divine assistance. That's the point of verse 16. No one can do the very thing we are called to do To not live according to the flesh on our own. We need divine assistance and we've been given that through the Holy Spirit. You see, all those who place their faith in Christ have received divine assistance through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Anyone who has put their faith in Jesus now has the Holy Spirit to help them in the Christian life, to equip them, to serve them, to empower them. Listen, we must not overlook the prominent role the Holy Spirit plays in chapters 3-5 through of this this book. I think it would be very easy to overlook this. We've spent time talking about the importance of God as Father. The whole book, we've been looking at the role of Christ. So we can look at the Father, we can look at the Son, but we dare not miss the role the Holy Spirit plays, not only in this letter, but in the life of a Christian. The first time Paul mentions the Spirit here in Galatians is in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. He says this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supply the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? See, the Apostle Paul is pointing back to their conversion and saying, do you remember what happened when you put your faith in Jesus? You are the people who receive the Spirit of God. In chapter 3, verse 14, he refers to them in this way. He says in verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So here are these people that are saying, if you do not keep the law, including things like circumcision, you you are not a child of Abraham. And Paul says, here's who the children of Abraham are. They put their faith in Jesus and they've received the promise of the spirit. But I wonder how often we focus on faith in Christ, but we forget the promise of the spirit. And Yet the spirit plays a prominent role throughout this letter. In chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, we're not going to read these for time's sake. We hear that the Spirit was given to us by the Father so that we know that we're children and we we can now call Him Daddy, Father, and not treat Him as if He's our master and we're a slave. No, we are free and we can live that way because of the Spirit. See, the Spirit of God plays a vital role in the life of a Christian. And one of the vital roles of the Spirit, according to verse 16, is that the Spirit enables us to stop living for the desires of the flesh. But know this, listen. The Spirit has been given to the Christian to help us not live according to the desires of the flesh. But walking in the Spirit is an act of war. It's an act of war. Walking in the Spirit feels like we're living life every day on a battlefield. Why do I say that? Because of verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Who here can relate to that struggle? (laughs) Who here can sense that struggle? The things you want to do, you don't end up doing. The things you don't want to do, you find yourself doing so easily. There is this war going on inside. Now it's important that we stop here and consider what's being implied in these verses. When people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the Spirit of God. However, receiving the Spirit of God does not mean we are immediately sanctified and no longer able to sin. We now have a helper. But that doesn't mean that when the Spirit comes, we no longer struggle. No, indwelling sin remains in the life of of a Christian, but the Spirit is there, is given to us to help us fight the battle we could never fight on our own. And why could we not fight it on our own? Because left to ourselves, we're enslaved to sin. We can't beat it. We can't overcome it on our own. Listen, friends, I truly believe that the daily battle against sin coupled with a misinformed view of sanctification, causes many Christians to despair. I believe when we're at the throes of the battle against sin and we have a misinformed view of sanctification, it can cause us to despair. It can cause us to doubt our assurance. And for some when you're in the throes of struggling with sin and you have a wrong view of sanctification, you may be tempted to stop fighting altogether. And I believe the point of this passage isn't just to give us information and to instruct us how to fight, though it does. I believe this passage is a gift from God that encourages us to have a right view of how sanctification works so are you here this morning battling with sin as a believer and finding yourself in despair not guilty not convicted in despair does your battle with sin cause you to doubt your assurance has it even caused you to say i give up this isn't Over the years, I've been so helped many, many, many times by John Newton, the late the former slave ship captain who became a Christian and eventually became a pastor and wrote probably the most famous hymn of all time, Amazing Grace. And John Newton has helped me many times and he's helped me to think clearly about this topic of fighting indwelling sin and the weariness it can cause. I love the way he illustrates this battle against the flesh. It it captures the way I feel most days. When I read it, I said, yeah, that's, that's about how I feel. Listen to what he said. Imagine a Christian sitting down with a blank page and pen. He begins to write out his perfectly scripted life, explaining how he would love others, how he would structure his prayer life, how he would sanctify his wife by the word. But indwelling sin and Satan crouch at his elbows, disrupting every pinstroke stroke and messing up every word and sentence as our Christian friend tries to write the script. At every point in the Christian life, Satan jabs our elbow and our pen skids across the page as our perfect plan is reduced to scribbles. This is the metaphor of the Christian life with indwelling sin. Yet the biggest problem is that sin is not at our elbow. Our sin is in us. Thank you, John Newton. Helpful. Can you relate to that? This morning as you were writing your script. I'm going to get up and be joyful. I'm not going to complain. I'm going to relate to my spouse or my children who still aren't ready for church well. And you made it to those doors. And you just got scribbles. How many times this week is it your plan to be more diligent? To not give in to temptations? To not give in to your anger? To not be selfish? To not click the button on the internet? That was your plan. But by the end of the day, you just have scribbles. Can you relate to that feeling? What is with that? Why 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 do we struggle this way? Well, much much could be said here. I, I just want to point out one thing for now because I think this is important, because my goal. Because I think it's the text's goal. My my goal is to make sure that as we struggle with sin, we have a right view of sanctification. And here's one of the areas I think we can have a wrong view of sanctification. And when we're battling with sin and we have a wrong view of sanctification, it will cause us to despair or even doubt our assurance. Listen, the desire for godliness, even when it's thwarted, can be proof of the Spirit's work. Don't miss what it says here. It doesn't just say the Spirit helps you overcome the desires of the flesh. No, the Spirit gives you desires. And they war against the desires of the flesh. To be a Christian is to have new desires. And even on those days when, when the desires of the flesh triumph, it doesn't mean that we are not a Christian. See, the question you and I must ask when examining our life and our faith is, do I still desire godliness, and am I still fighting for it? The question isn't, am I struggling with sin? And I'm struggling with sin more this week than last week? Or for the last month, I have just every day had nothing but scribbles on my page. How do I know I'm a believer? Here's the question. Do you desire Godliness? And are you fighting for it? You're just losing? See, be careful. Be careful that you don't look wrongly at your struggle and think, well, if I was a Christian, I wouldn't be struggling this way. No. To be a Christian is to be in the fight. It's to be in the fight. I mean, why stay in the fight? I mean, get this. If you understand what verse 17 is saying, it appears that to be a Christian creates in us a battle that didn't exist if we lived according to the flesh. So is this really worth it? Listen, if you're here this morning and you have some view of Christianity that we're all a bunch of people who just think we're morally right and better than everybody else, we just happen to, you know believe this, this book tells us to live rightly and, and Jesus was just this perfect moral teacher and we're seeking to follow Him. Listen, that's not what Christianity is about. And Christianity is worth it, but it's hard. And it's hard in many ways. And one of the ways... Is this right here. When you become a Christian, all of a sudden the things you used to do start warring with you. You don't like them anymore. You don't want them to be in your life anymore. And it can be tempting to say, you know what? I had more peace. Not true peace. But it felt like I had more peace when I was just giving in. Is this really worth it? The answer comes in verse 18. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. What does that mean to be under the law is a reference to being free. if you are led by the Spirit you are free listen don't miss this don't miss this to walk according to the Spirit it does leave us in a battle with the flesh and against indwelling sin but get the alternative listen. To have the Spirit at work in you leaves you in a battle with the flesh. But there is an alternative. Here's the alternative. You can either be at battle with the Spirit on your side against sin, or you can be enslaved to sin. There is no middle ground. So Here's the question. Would you rather be free but fighting? Or would you prefer to live as a slave that's defeated by sin? You're here this morning, you say, Man, I just don't know if it's if it's worth hardship to fight for godliness. Here's the question: would you rather be free but fighting or a slave that is defeated by sin? Because those are the two choices? And that's true for everyone in this room this morning. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a slave to sin. The world uses terms like addictions and all of these other things. You know what they're trying to get at? The very thing we just read. What I want to do, I can't do. See, the world doesn't have a doctrine of sin. We do. What is that thing going in on in us that makes us do the things we don't want to do? And the things we want to do, we we find almost impossible to do at times. We're broken. You're broken. And if you don't belong to Jesus Christ, not only are you not forgiven, you are on your own. You are on your own to fight the sin in your life. Paul's not done talking about this for just a moment, so we want to continue on in this thought of verses 19 through the beginning of verse 21. He he goes on to say this. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, Sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. In these verses, we're we're given a broad range of vices. This is not an exhaustive list. Did you notice how verse 21 says, and things like these? Paul's not saying these are the only things. He's saying things like these. I'm just giving you some examples. Here's some examples. They might have been some of the very things they were seeing in in some of these areas in Galatia. And if you notice, these vices are placed in groupings. The first three mention sexual sin. Followed by two vices that speak of a refusal to worship the one true God. And then notice what's given the most time. Going back to probably where the Galatians are struggling. Social sins that disrupt relationships and community. And then Paul ends by tagging on a few sins that show what it's like to just give into the flesh and live for what seems right to you. Now let me make one observation about this list before reflecting on what Paul says at the end of verse 21. This list of vices, these works of the flesh as he calls them, that are mentioned here in verses 19 through 21, listen, listen. They should remind us that left to ourselves, we are capable of sinning in grievous ways. It doesn't say some really bad people, they can do things like this. The works of the flesh are these things. Can we take that in for just a moment? Absorbing the stark description and activities of the flesh, they should sober us to the seriousness of sin. If you're here this morning and you just think sin is just a list of rules God gives and they're not a big deal, listen, sin is serious. Do you know the evil that resides in you left to yourself? Because if you do, first of all, it will protect you from self-righteousness. See, if we really understand left to ourselves what we should do, how in the world could we ever look at another believer or anyone else struggling with heinous sins and say, how could they? Apart from the grace of God goes I. There's wickedness reigning in us. Seeing that guards us from self-righteousness. But then Paul gives a warning at the end of verse 21, and it's an important warning for us to heed. Listen to what he says at the end of verse 21, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Make no mistake. Please hear this. Despite what may be said in a book or in an article or in a message you may have heard someone say on the Internet, to live in open sin of any kind without remorse or without repentance will send you to hell. That's what he just said in verse 21. To do those things and to say, I'm a Christian, but I can live however I want. I don't feel bad about it. I don't show repentance. I don't show remorse. He said, if you say that, you do not inherit the kingdom of God. There's a warning here. And I wouldn't be a faithful pastor if I did not express this warning. It doesn't say there's a list of sins. You do those, oh man, you're in trouble. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if we continue to live in open rebellion without repentance and without remorse, we will not experience eternal life. So go back to that question. Why is the fight against sin worth it? Because you will inherit eternal life. Here this morning saying, I don't know if fighting against my sin is worth it. What's the alternative? (laughs) Paul then contrasts here in verses 22 through 23. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If in verse 19 through 21, we, we encountered a list of vices and we saw that they are the results of our natural desires, here in verses 22 through 23, we have a list of virtues. And notice notice this, these lists of virtues can only be the result of the Spirit at work in us. Don't miss this. Did you notice how he, how he spoke of the flesh? He called them the works of the flesh. These virtues are what? The fruit of the Spirit. They're not the works of the flesh. See, we can create vices; Only God at work in us can produce the fruit. See, we need God's help. And once again, this is not an exhaustive list of all the fruits of the, of the Spirit. Once again, by the way, he adds on that line, he's just giving a list of He's saying, hey, these are some of the attributes So according to these verses of Scripture, get this, only the Spirit of God can produce in us qualities that make for a godly life. Why do we need the Spirit's help? Not only because without the Spirit's help, we are enslaved to sin. Without the Spirit's help, we cannot produce the kind of qualities we desire to live a godly life. It's impossible. And we see at the end of verse 23, in the same way Paul ended the vice list with a warning, he ends the virtue list with a promise. Listen to what he says at the end of verse 23. Against such things there is no law. What does he mean by that? I believe the point he's making is simple. Keeping the law cannot produce in us what is necessary to live a godly life. Only the Spirit at work. How do we apply this before looking at this last verse? I was helped by this statement by one commentator. He said this. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 24, Paul introduces the dominant actor in the drama of the Christian life. The spirit. Read that again. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 24, Paul introduces the dominant actor actor in the drama of Christian living, which is the Spirit. Here's the question for you. Is the dominant actor in your story you or the Spirit? Maybe the reason you and I are not living victorious over sin is because we are the dominant actor. If I just read my Bible more, if I just prayed more, if I just tried to stop, Are we the dominant actor? Or is the spirit the dominant actor? I wonder how many battles we're losing in the war against sin solely because we're trying to do for ourselves what we can never do on our own. And what is that? Defeat sin and produce godly fruit. You struggling to defeat sin this morning? Are you you struggling? Are you just tired of, of bearing so little fruit? Guess what? The problem most likely is you're the dominant actor in your story. Not the Spirit. You're not dependent upon God to do what you cannot do on your own. In case there's any confusion over what it means to walk according to the Spirit or be led according to the Spirit. Let me me point out the significance of these choices of words like walk and phrases like if you're led by the Spirit. Here's what these phrases imply. They imply action on our part. We need God's help, but that doesn't make us passive. We can choose to submit to the Spirit's work or we can resist the Spirit's work. Now, how do we practically do that? We're going to learn more about that next week, beginning in verse 25. So that brings us now to the second and last thing. This one verse, verse 24. Why is the battle against sin worth fighting? Because victory has been secured in Christ. Look at verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Do you remember what we discovered in chapter 2, verse 20? Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I know it is no, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are united to Him, which means that when He died on the cross, it was as if we died with Him. The implications of our union with Christ has a significant bearing on the way we battle against sin. Think about that illustration of D-Day again. D Day changed the course of the war, but the fighting continued on for some time after the victory. Listen, when Jesus died on the cross for our sin, he not only purchased our pardon from the penalty of sin, he secured us from, he secured victory over the power of sin. But until we die or he returns, we must keep fighting but we must do so as those who are free, forgiven, and victorious. So here's a question for you and me to consider this morning. Is this the manner in which you are pursuing sanctification? Are you fighting as one who is free, forgiven, and victorious? Or do you think if you're free... Forgiven and victorious, you don't have to fight. Is that how you and I are fighting our sin? Let me return in closing to my old friend John Newton. I think he described the power of Christ at work in a struggling saint in such a helpful way. This quote's going to be up here on the screen. He says, Christ's power. And maintaining His work in the midst of so much opposition is like a spark burning in water. Think about that metaphor. Christ's power in maintaining His work in the midst of so much opposition is like a spark burning in water. Listen. A spark burning in water may not appear to be that bright or that bold, but a spark burning in water, make no mistake, is white hot. If you're looking at your life and your struggle with sin and saying, I don't know that Christ really is that powerful and that victorious because I look at my struggle with sin, and if He's victorious, then why am I not victorious? Listen, Christ's power is like a spark. In the water. It doesn't look that bright. It doesn't look that bold. But it's white hot. When you're struggling with sin. Know this. Christ's power to defeat sin may look dull and deluded, but it's not. It's not. Sin has been defeated. The enemy has been conquered because Christ died on the cross and He rose from the grave. Therefore, listen, therefore, we can sing with triumph. Do you believe this? We can sing with triumph, even on the days we're struggling with sin. The words of this hymn, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed His own blood for my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, not just the penalty. My sin, not in part, but the whole. The power, not just the penalty. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. That is the song we can sing even on the days we're living feeling defeated. The Spirit is in us and we desire godliness and we're fighting. Listen, we will. Be victorious. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for the good work you've done in the hearts and lives of each person here this morning. Now we pray that you would help us respond to the message we've just heard in an appropriate way, and that looks different for people all over this room, very differently. So I pray now that you would help each person right now discern what are they to do in light of what they've just heard. For some, they are to repent of their sin, put their faith in Christ, be forgiven of their sin, receive the Spirit of God, and live a new life. For others, Lord, become discouraged, By their sin and the battle against their sin. And they are either despairing or doubting or have given up. Lord, would you show them that the fight against sin is worth it? And Father, may we leave here today more aware of the Savior than our sinful state. May we leave here rejoicing in our great God and your great grace. Thank you, not only for loving us, for sending your son to die for us, but for giving us the Spirit to help us live this life and to run this race. Lord, help us not neglect this great gift of the Holy Spirit. May we live in light of the Spirit to this week. And may we start to find greater victory over sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.